Hello everybody and welcome to episode 5 of season 2 of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, you better believe we're going to try and fix it. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of eponymous sequelizers. The team formerly known as Street Sharks. Completely disassociated with Street Sharks. Nothing to do with sharks or pavements An entirely separate legal entity from from Street Sharks. Our lawyers tell us that we have to make that clear every single episode. Our lawyers are us, but carry on. I hate you guys so much. They are, in fact, Matthew Stogden. Uh, Hello. And Thomas Martin. Hello there. And their opponents... The Plowman Ashen Experience. Alexander Plowman. Yep. And Stuart Ashen. Hello. This episode is something that's actually quite close to my heart because I'm a comic book nerd and I'm a huge Superman fan, both in print and in movie. And I think the film we're going to be discussing today is where really a lot of problems started for Superman in general. It is, of course, 1983's Superman 3. Can I put out a little uh, statement? I'd actually go further forward, back, sorry, and say the rot set in with everybody fucking with Richard Donner on Superman Two. Hundred percent agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rot. The rot set in on Superman Two, but the results weren't seen until Superman Three. Correct. So, uh, yes. To me, the Donner cut is all that exists. I don't care about Richard Lester's let's make it a fucking joke every single time. I love the the, the Musketeers films. I like what uh, Lester has done in the past, um, but he really ruined Superman. Flat out. Always looking for a silly little gag. Always a stupid joke. Always dumb. And the Salkind producing side of it, nightmarish. I think think that they are more to blame for that than anything Richard Lester did, though. I would say this is a producer decision. But I'll let Jack uh, interject with that to make sense of our incoherent ramblings with his host-like style (laughs) please do the richard donner christopher reeve original superman film would really kind of change the face of superhero films as we know it was the first kind of really big release so there were some terrible kind of adaptations of super i mean there was tv stuff serialized shit Yeah. yeah this felt like the first big venture onto the big screen for the most iconic superhero the the character that defines superheroes ever since well it made it a credible film as well an actual narrative with drama and rather than just being the sort of campy up up and away and then cuts to a cartoon kind of thing and it it genuinely tried to push the boundaries in terms of what could be achieved visually and everything so as i said you will believe a man can fly yeah yes yeah true and the belief isn't all just a special effect no no i mean christopher reeve is a fantastic actor in in that and actually something that come up a lot when we were doing some research about Superman 3 was how, you know, it went, and obviously jumping ahead to the critical response, one of the things that really was critically lauded about Superman 3 was his performance when he does the uh, bit where he's kind of Separation. evil Superman. And evil Superman, yeah. He is a good actor. Like and, and the is, special is, effects for that aren't that bad either. Like, no, that's really a forefront of the thing. That's really well achieved. The physical is stuff he does when he's Clark Kent as well. Everything's very hunched oh, and different. Oh, God, yeah. There's so a gif I saw of that recently where you see him go from Superman to Clark Kent and it's just him putting on the glasses and standing up straight. And you're yeah. like, oh, that's so good. Yeah. Christopher Reeve just absolutely nailed that transition the difference between the way he projects his voice as Superman and then is oh, back well, to being uh, uh, Lois. Uh, mumbly and uh, yeah, yeah exactly he's, he's incredible fantastic I mean it carries it from what um, yeah what George Reed did in, in, the, in the TV series stuff it's still I think Christopher Reeve is really the, most people's Superman and always will be and I think another thing as well as people don't seem to realise that he had a really heavy hand in how the f- these films were written and amended because he was like this is not good enough this is all campy nonsense this is terrible this is not it this is you know this is 
is being hijacked. And and um, yeah, he he really did craft it kind of from from the ground up in a long way with you know, him and Donna and, and a few other people, um, seminal people involved. Um, and again, made it something that was a very legitimized thing rather than a man in his pants, basically. But why does it go wrong with Superman 3? What happens there? Tell us, Jack. Tell us a story about how Superman 3 goes wrong. Too much fun. That's what goes wrong. <laughs> I heard that Richard Pryor made a, uh, a, an offhand comment on an interview saying, oh, I want to be in the yeah. new Superman film. And they, they can't say, oh, it's a great idea. He's like, no, I don't want really... Okay, the money's joke. good. I'm a comedian. Yeah. Mm. Don't put me in... Oh, fuck, yeah. they're paying me, me loads of money. This okay. PG film would not <laughs> well, Can Gene Wilder be in it too? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. It does kind of start during Superman 2, as we've alluded to. Yeah, you, you and Matt kind of hinted at this earlier. Basically, with Superman 2, you've got the... Um, Superman 1 and 2 were made back-to-back, weren't they? The big problem was that there was a clash between Richard Donner, the director who had a very particular vision for Superman, and the producers. The producers end up ousting Donner to bring in Richard Lester, who is probably at the time, as you said, best known for directing the Musketeer movies, also for doing the Beatles' Hard Day's Night. He is brought in to do that, and he is a much more jovial, comical style. So you do get some silliness introduced in Superman 2. He gets given a load of weird powers, and that all comes from that influence by superman 3 donna is out of the picture entirely and it's all over to the producers and richard lester to make a particular kind of superman movie and they do a very different kind of movie even from what was originally planned they jettison a lot of comic book elements they go for a much campier and overtly funny tone I think the opening of Superman 3 tells you everything you need to know about the film because it's a seven-minute slapstick sequence that plays more like something out of a Charlie Chaplin movie than something out of a Superman movie. It's a really weird change of pace. In the same way that Batman Forever was a really weird change of pace, except that it did not work. I think the frustration as well is... Depending on who you talk to, there was rumours that Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder were so pissed off with how Donna was treated that both of them did refuse to sort of come back. And then there was people saying, well, no, Margot Kidder's role was very much, didn't need much more exploring because it was very much resolved in Superman 2. You can go further than that. And Hackman was very much along the lines of, no, no, you can't keep just keep having him come back. Otherwise, it's the same boring trope of, of Luther over and over and over. Um, and both, I think, are probably partly true. Um, but ultimately, the problem, I think, lies with the fact that they think, right, and again, and again, on paper, it's actually, much like Quantum of Solace, and actually quite a credible, interesting story for Superman, in a way, or just even as a story. The idea of technology and computers, and it's all very forward-thinking, and, and space lasers, in a way, but also the idea of, like, influencing people's um, economies with satellites and such. And it's like, yeah, this is a, a credible thing. But what the fuck is Superman going to do about it? So you end up with Robot Vera. And it was it was originally a very different movie, apparently, because originally it was meant to be Brainiac. So I was going to say, I always wondered if it was meant to be Brainiac, because it's such an obvious yeah. thing. Because it wasn't just Brainiac, it was Mr. Mitzelplick as well, um, played by Dudley Moore, apparently. Really? Allegedly, wow. yeah. <laughs> Nothing, that kind of works. I know. Yes. I've just gone from ooh to ooh. Yeah, I know. And the thing is, it's like a really great idea. But again, the way they were selling it was actually really fucking dark, apparently. And again, all these different ideas and things they were talking about that, again, who knows? Let's face it, it sounds like a sequelizer pitch. Like, that's actually a good idea. I'm, I, I hate that character, but no, I'm sorry. It's like when um, Grant Morrison brought him back for the Action Comics New 52 stuff. I'm like, actually, yeah, I really like that. That's pretty well done. But at the same time, 
it's not a pronounceable word. It's just a mess. But no, what they ended up with was just, again, something that departed very much from the comics and the lore and everything else. But to be fair, Donna's stuff kind of... I don't think there were lots of crystals and stuff from Krypton before Donna wrote all that stuff in. So the comic just absorbed a lot of it in there. So It is... There is some okay stuff in Superman 3, and I think the stuff that works, some of the Smallville stuff works and the romance stuff with Lana Lang, and again, Christopher Reeve plays that brilliantly and totally sells that. But it it feels like such a a tonal departure, and it does go very campy and very slapstick, and it feels a bit like a step backwards for superhero films. Superman established such a precedent, and that took films away from where they had been in the 60s and 70s, and it feels like it it goes back into... The crossovers with I Love Lucy and the Superman TV series, you're like, what is this? Also, considering in the 80s as well, you start getting to the period of comics, what's it called, the Bronze Age, whatever it is, where everything gets really dark, and Frank Miller says, no, 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 everything is shit. And Frank Miller does not like the Supermans. And subsequently, what you end up with is this just like, you know, everything, again, what we have in the 80s and 90s in comics is you've got everything is darker, everything's more gritty, everything's more shitty, and you get like The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and all that sort of stuff. And then you get to the 90s, everything's shoulder pads and guns and The Punisher and Dread and pouches. Exactly. And it's it steps away from, it, well, one of the people that suffer the most with that is Superman, which leads to the death of Superman in the comics eventually, because like, what do you do with this character? He doesn't fit. Well, that's the thing. The only, th- the you know, I'm nowhere near as big a comics reader as you guys. Me and Matt were having this discussion when we were planning, and I was saying, you know, the the, the essential issue with Superman as I see as a character is that he is kind of boring, and actually the most interesting Superman comics that I've read are, are things like All Star Superman, which give him spoiler alert if you haven't read it, it makes him mortal because he flies too close to the sun, and he's going to die. And uh, All Star Superman is. Like one of the best it's, comics it's, it's, book yeah, stories ever told. It's fantastic, and stuff like Red Sun, which puts him in a completely different setting. And I think I, that's the. I, I would. I I disagree that Superman is a is boring character, but I I think there is a certain way to approach him, and they approach him brilliantly in the first film, and well in the second film, and then in this film, you just there is a sense that the people writing this movie don't really know a lot about yes Superman. very much so which again is how which is a recurring theme. <laughs> yeah i was gonna say looking at you Zack snyder yeah Zack snyder really doesn't understand i don't like so. Zack snyder spoilers how does this one score anyway can anybody guess what the what the percentage fresh i'm on say rotten 43 tomatoes? i'm gonna say f- yeah at 40 odd i'm gonna say 50 i'm gonna go low i'm gonna go about 35 alec is the closest good it's 26. Whoa! I'm guessing a lot of those are retrospective reviews, though. Probably. Mm, I don't know. Would maybe. you like to know what Superman 4 is? Ooh, oh, about, about 10. 15. 12. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, thing, the worst part is, though, Superman 4 brings back a lot of Superman stuff that makes a lot of sense. It just wasn't have the budget behind it. And it comes from the most beautiful place of a kid saying about, you know, yeah. uh, just the idea that um, why do we have to live in this world? Why can't you fix it? And it's that crushing mindset of, like, I know I'm portraying a character who can fix every problem. Why doesn't he fix all these problems? I, I will say, and I, this is controversial, I prefer Superman 4 to Superman 3. As a Superman film, um, my, I can understand that. My reasoning that. is that it is a poorly made, cheaply made Superman film, but at least it is a Superman film, and I don't know if you could say that for Superman 3. If you haven't seen it at home, do look up Nuclear Man oh. on YouTube. Oh, it is yes. astonishing. From Superman's hair. <clears throat> it, it is, yeah, one of the worst villains Although ever the put actual, to celluloid. The actual Nuclear Man birth scene looks quite cool. Mm. 
and nothing else works. It's, it's in more that movie, the actual um, character yeah, when you see him and how he acts. I think and, he's, uh, he literally not just, Dolph like a, yeah. just a pro wrestler from the 80s. Just, and you're like, yeah. What, yeah. what are you doing here? I mean, but you then, thought the fair, third one was campy. Woohoo! Just your way. But then if, if you look at the comics, sometimes you do get yeah. the, like, look and go, oh, oh. We say the third one's campy because it is. I mean, it's very campy and slapstick, but it has problems with its own tone where it goes really fucking dark. For oh, sure. Are we talking about Vera by any chance? Vera, which is. Which traumatized me as a child. sister character. Yeah. Because her transformation into some sort of weird controlled cyborg is really unpleasant. It's proper horror imagery. One of the main antagonists in the film is a sentient computer who at one point... But it's not Brainiac. No, not Brainiac. A different sentient computer. Biliac. That that at one point turns a woman into a robot in a scene where there is no music. No, it's it's just like this full on... Terrifying. like horror sequence it's fucking traumatizing um, and she's screaming and it's yeah. forced in and then afterwards she's lurching around as it tries to control her and it's really unpleasant slight aside before I forget you know the bizarre scene at the end of Superman 2 where he picks off his cling film logo and chucks it and it grows is that still in the Donner cut don't think so no that was not a Donner element I didn't think it was but I wondered if it remained the problem is I only remember the Donner cut and so whenever I'm really worried now that our thing's gonna have like I didn't have it so fuck Damn you, Donna, and a better film. So in case any of our listeners haven't seen Superman 3, once again, as I often say, you made the right choice. I'll give a quick synopsis for you guys. A computer programmer, Gus Gorman, played by, of course, none other than Richard Pryor, is hired by financial tycoon Ross Webster, played by Robert Vaughan, to seize control of a weather satellite and annihilate Columbia's coffee crop. Because, you know, Superman villains are always concerned with, like, real estate and coffee and completely mundane just, shit like just that. like in the comics and peach yeah. tea i mean i don't know if you remember that uh, whole dark side nescafe crossover but it was, uh, <laughs> absolutely amazing the darker side of gold blend can be found on apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> i'm available for adverts heated with beams <laughs> omega roasted coffee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a deep cut comic book reference there anyway when Superman, of course played by Christopher Reeve, manages to thwart the plan, Webster commands Gorman to use the satellite to locate some kryptonite, of course, Superman's main weakness. An unknown element in the kryptonite goes missing and is replaced by tobacco tar. It's cough syrup is the missing bit, actually, in that, by the way. That's <laughs> what gives it that kick, right? It gives it that kick, yeah, exactly. I'm hooked on this stuff back in Nam. <laughs> it causes an unintended side effect... And splits Superman in two. As in like a good side and a bad side. Not, Not down like the middle. He's a screaching oh, like mass of flesh or something. It was such a funny film. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very odd movie. Really, frankly. And again, as Alex said, it's just not a good Superman movie. But thank f- again, because of Reeves and because of the whole Lana Lang story, going back to Smallville, who am I sort of stuff. And the um, definitely the fight between the um, inhibitioned uh, Superman and the bumbling Clark Kent fight. And it's just it's just really nicely done. There are bits of it you think, yeah, this is solid. And they think, what the fuck is... I'm pretty sure at one point Robert Vaughan's going, ah, migraines! You went to go clockwise, not counterclockwise. Like, what the fuck is this? What is? And then there's one point with Richard Pryor jumping off a building in skis with the pink tablecloth. What is this film? And Robert Vaughan basically plays Diet Lex Luthor, pretty much because they couldn't get uh, Hackman back. Exactly. It's all. It's just a mess, isn't it? If I was given that script, I would be saying, "Is this weird sort of relationship between the brother and sister villains really necessary in a children's film? Is this? I don't know." 
It's it a very was, odd. It was an utter utter mess of a movie. Even as a child, I remember being very disappointed watching this one after seeing the first two. Me too. I remember Me too. renting them all from the library and being really just absolutely loving one and two and then being completely I didn't mind the uh, bit where Pryor, as a child at least when Pryor's trying to use the keys and he's saying the thing and again it's, it's awful slap that we're referencing but as a child I'm like yeah okay, this is quite funny they're, I think they're drunk I don't know what drunk is because I'm quite young and then that fucking robot comes out and everything is wrong and I don't care anymore I literally the don't main care villain's a computer yeah yeah don't but we're gonna fix it we are we're gonna fix it good let's do it mm. No Superman Supervised. 3. See you next week, kids. <laughs> <laughs> we end at Superman 2. Yep. Next, episode 6 of Sequelizers. He saved the day. Full stop. <laughs> episode 6 of Sequelizers. We end at Indy 3. <laughs> <laughs> but as much as I love Richard Pryor and a genius as he was, don't write super films around him. No, you know? no, no, no. He was given far much... Tra- this is the first thing that Christopher Reeve got... Um, Top billing on the poster as well, and really? even then, he, yeah, he was because it was before it was um, Marlon Brando, mm. and then it was Gene oh, Hackman, and then course. finally Christopher Reeve, and it still felt like because I think the poster is him flying out of a canyon, yeah. holding, holding Richard Pryor, going whoa, and it's like, oh my Gonna god, yeah, exactly. Anyway, over to Plowman and Ashen for your team name, please, sirs. Wow, this this week we are psychic nutritionists. <laughs> um, I get the joke. For, uh, for all of the listeners at home, in Superman 3, one of the henchwoman characters is called Lorelei Ambrosia, which is a terrible so, name. Straight out of 60s Batman, uh, that one. She is <laughs> described as a psychic nutritionist in the film. It's uh, a stupid detail that is representative of the stupidity of that movie in general. I agree. Pretty much. Yep. yep. So we have the psychic nutritionists versus Aquaman. I mean, it could be worse. Can I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I tell you the alt that we were toying with? I'm, I'm the, imagining the... your funeral and smiling. <laughs> well, no, the alt one that we... we just... the, the alternative might the, be worse. The alternative might be worse. The alternative we were going to go with was uh, Sons of Jaws-L, which... Um... Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Fuck off. So Aquaman's what you got. Just, Aquaman. just Jaws-L. Super Friends. Yeah. Aquaman. So there we go. So we're the Aquaman this week. Yeah. Psychic nutritionists, why don't you hit me with your... Themes, film title, all that good stuff. Our film title is Superman and the Justice League of America. Wow, that's bold. Do you want our year? Do you want. Yes, please. 1985. Our elevator pitch. Mankind faces a deadly threat, and Superman alone cannot stop it. To save the day, he'll need to unite the world's greatest superheroes, but time is running out. Mm. Nice. Themes. Overcoming adversity through teamwork. Uniting for the common good. Truth, justice, and the Armenian way. Sorry, American (laughs) way. And nuclear weapons. They're a bit shit, really, aren't they? Yeah, not true. Over to you, Aquaman, with your title, your year, elevator pitch. Please, sirs. Uh, our film is called Superman Returns. Ooh. Ooh. Because we, again, similar to our last one with Enter the Matrix, we like the name but not the movie. So we've pinched the nice name and uh, nice. we're going to make a better movie out of it. Yeah. We are releasing this film in 1991. Our elevator pitch is, a decade after disappearing from active duty, Clark Kent is located in rural America by Jimmy Olsen, who explains that the world is a very different place from when he left. But does the world still need either Clark Kent or Superman? 
What? Mm, interesting. Aquaman, cast and crew. Okay. Um, so as uh, my fellow Aquaman, Tom, has pointed out, it's 1991, 11 years after Superman 2. The director is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 6. Two of the good Star Trek. Core fucking wrecked. The returning cast is Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent slash Superman. Uh, Mark McClure comes back as Jimmy Olsen. Jackie Cooper as Perry White. The new cast is as follows. Brace your fucking selves. Oh, this is good. Uh-oh. Alec Baldwin. Oh, I thought you were going to say Plowman. Alec Plowman <laughs> <laughs> as Lex Luthor Jr. Interesting. At this point, he's done Beetlejuice and The Hunt for October. Which I fucking love, The Hunt for October. Goes on to do Glenn, uh, Small Role in Glengarry Glen Ross, and that's very much a big draw on this one. Denzel Washington as John Corbin. Um, he's only just done Glory at this point, and he goes on to do Malcolm X in Philadelphia. So it's before he's like a huge, huge star. He's just a guy who's done reasonably well. Our DP is Yann de Bont, uh, or Yann de Bont, um, who's done The Jewel of the Nile, Die Hard, Flatliners, tons of other things, and goes on to do Lethal Weapon 3 around that time. Our composer, we're bringing back John Williams. We were on the fence about John Williams for a while, really? but, things, but yeah, because I mean, you'd want to do something different, but yeah, it's basically enough, nice. But I think, no, come back. It's, it's been such a departure in time from yeah. the original, so yeah. And he's done at this point, born on the 4th of July, Home Alone, and he's going to go on to do Jurassic Park and Nixon and other stuff. Yeah, and Star Wars and all that stuff. You know, those things. John Williams. We're done. Oh, the what? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. You had like a 15 minute cast list for the last one. Yeah, well, we thought we'd keep film. it. Yeah, we're a different film. We thought we'd like, keep it like five people in this fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of extras <laughs> going, what's that? Is it a You're bird? Really is it a bird? Is it a plane? Why is it shitting is on it me? Is it Alec Baldwin? Is <laughs> it Alec Baldwin? No, it's Donald Trump. Oh, accurate. Over to you, psychic nutritionists. Thank you. So, in the year 1985, Superman and the Justice League of America will be directed by George Lucas. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus Christ. Christ. Is it Star Trek versus Star Wars? <laughs> oh, my. Fuck me. Sorry, what? Yeah. Yeah. Because George Lucas is a huge comic book guy. Oh, no, no, I don't disagree. Together, I think it's interesting. No. Yeah. You said you said 83? 85. 85. So, so he's just rats Return after. the Jedi. Just well, he was, yeah, because he, well, he didn't obviously yeah. directing that. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Carry on. Look, all right. Superman, Christopher Reeve returns, of course. Lois Lane, Margot Kidder again. Perry White, good old Jackie Cooper. Jimmy Olsen, Mark A. McClure, of course. And Marlon Brando will return briefly as Jor L. Mm. Mm. New cast. <laughs> Shit. Raish Al Ghul. Oh. George wait. Lucas. <laughs> Peter Frampton no. <laughs> Tom's spit take was, of the moment That was the closest spit take we've had on this show That was amazing Oh I want you to bring in a Lazarus pit um, I just want to make sure if it's okay Yeah um, No uh, Rachel Ghoul Played by Peter Cushing Oh I shit. thought you were going to say Peter Frampton No 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 I, I like <laughs> this, is a, this is a Framp free zone for the time being I like that That's a really nice cast That's the app okay. Wonder Woman Played by Linda Carter Oh okay Okay. Batman, played by Adam West. Whoa! I'm going to need a minute, Alex. <laughs> this is the DC Cinematic Universe. Just done 30. Uh, you I'm going to need a minute. I'm going to need a minute um, for that. Our director of photography is Douglas Slocum. Oh, who, nice, um, nice work. That is good. Yeah. Cool. And, I mean, Douglas Slocum has done loads and loads and loads of stuff, but we specifically really like the way that he took the serial feel um, and adapted it to... Indiana Jones and had that sense of that but also managed to create something that was much more 
epic in scale in terms of locations and things and the way that he photographs that, which is going to be very relevant for this movie. Um, Douglas Oakham is a fucking genius. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So returning to um, score the film is, of course, John Williams. And the formula for Linda Carter's hairspray was provided by Peter Pan. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> And in a tragic See, accident, we... some of it got on George Lucas's neck and caused this... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid Frampton did get the blame for He's that. He's gone. He's gone. And of course, the fat in the neck tumour then went on to direct three prequel films based on the Star Wars franchise. I guess I'll go to the psychic nutritionists first. Mm. Okay. Lay we open on a dawn raid break-in at a high-tech computer technology facility in downtown Metropolis. A group of shadowy, ninja-like figures sneak their way through the compound towards a central room. Someone trips a silent alarm. An armed security unit is dispatched, arriving at the facility and engaging with the ninjas. They are easily overwhelmed, however, and the ninjas reach the centre of the complex, where they retrieve an unusual-looking electronic device. They are about to make their escape when Superman appears. While they made light work of the security unit, the ninjas unsurprisingly struggle against the Man of Steel. Their katana shatter when they come into contact with him, and he effortlessly melts their shuriken with his heat vision. It looks like Soups has them on the ropes when the group's leader, Talon, presses a button on his katana and causes the blade to glow green. He strikes blows against Superman that leave him weakened. The blade appears to be infused with green kryptonite. Superman tries to fight back. Swiping at one of the ninjas, he manages to pull off part of his sleeve, which features a peculiar insignia. But Superman is unsteady on his feet, and ultimately falls to the floor, temporarily incapacitated. The ninjas escape with the electronic device. The credit sequence starts. As with the first two Superman films, this takes well over ten minutes, giving you ample time... Giving you ample time to make a cup of tea if you're watching this on television and forgot to put the kettle on before the film started. <laughs> it was the law back then. It's the rules. Mm. A staff meeting takes place at the Daily Planet. Perry White, Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are discussing the recent spate of robberies on high-tech facilities in Metropolis that have occurred in the last few weeks, particularly the latest incident which occurred just this morning. White notes that these robberies are not unique to the city, with similar instances being reported in Gotham and Star City. Jimmy Olsen wonders out loud whether there is a Soviet connection, recalling hearsay about Russian spies trying to steal American tech. Lois Lane says that sounds like nonsense and it is more likely rival tech companies trying to get the drop on one another. Clark Kent enters the meeting late, looking suitably dishevelled. Perry lambasts him for being late. Lois tells him he looks rough. Clark blames bad takeout. <laughs> <laughs> you look rough, Kent. Yeah. <laughs> I've had the shits, Lois. <laughs> the fuck do you expect? My back. <laughs> That's an excellent Crystal Reeve impression. That time. <laughs> <laughs> I had the fucking shits. <laughs> it's Christopher Reeve Danny by Dyer. Danny Dyer. Yeah. Superman. Yeah. <laughs> I was going more Ray Winston. No, you should know that I only do one voice. <laughs> On the way out of the meeting, Clark shows Jimmy Olsen the insignia that he swiped from the ninja. He says he found it on the subway and asks him if he knows anything about it. Olsen, however, has no idea. We cut to the Fortress of Solitude. Superman shows the insignia to Jor-El, who cannot find the symbol referenced in any of the Kryptonian databanks. Then, an unfamiliar, off-screen voice responds to Superman's question. They call themselves the League of Shadows. Surprised, Superman spins around to find himself facing a man he instantly recognises, billionaire philanthropist Bruce Brain. 
Superman is shocked, questioning how Wayne managed, firstly to find out where the Fortress of Solitude is, and secondly, managed to break in. Wayne recounts his genius, Batman-esque entry to the Fortress, much to Superman's amazement. How does a billionaire playboy get to know so much about breaking and entering? I used to be like you, Bruce Wayne responds. Wayne tells Superman about his past life as Batman, how he was a crime fighter on the side of justice and righteousness in the 1960s, and how his crime fighting career ended when he and his sidekick Robin faced a terrible foe named Raish al Ghul. Raish was a formidable villain, unlike any the dynamic duo had ever fought, i.e. he didn't have face paint over his moustache. <laughs> Wayne reveals that Raish has lived for hundreds of years, resurrecting himself through the use of a mythical Lazarus pit, which has warped his mind. Believing that society was corrupted and had run its course, Raish and his League of Shadows intended to raise the world and build a new one in its place. In fact, they've attempted to do so several times throughout history. Batman and Robin ultimately stopped their attempt in the 1960s, but it came at a terrible price. Robin was killed in the climactic battle. Grief-stricken and feeling responsible for his ward's demise, Batman retired from crime-fighting, endeavouring to make the world a better place as Bruce Wayne through his philanthropic pursuits instead. He had presumed Raish to be dead as well, but observing this recent spate of tech robberies, he believes that Raish has returned. Wayne has been investigating these tech robberies. Looking at the parts that the League of Shadows has stolen, he has come to the conclusion that Raish is building a device to hack into the launch mechanisms and guidance systems of nuclear missiles. Wayne believes that Raish is planning to fire a Soviet warhead at an American target, ending the mutually assured destruction deterrent of the Cold War, and instigating a nuclear Armageddon. Once again, he plans to build a new world from the ashes of the old. What's more, he needs just one more part, under guard at a top-secret science facility in the centre of London, to complete his device. And based on the current pattern of Raish's operations, he is due to raid that facility in approximately 48 hours. Superman is understandably alarmed by these developments, and says that he and Wayne need to stop Raish as soon as possible. Wayne agrees, but says that the two are not strong enough on their own. Raish is a master tactician and will have analysed their every weakness, prepared for every eventuality. This, Wayne reasons, is why the League of Shadows ninjas were armed with kryptonite-infused katana. He tells Superman that they need a wild card, one more ally who can help them in their mission, but they must journey to a forgotten land to find her. Meanwhile, in Raish's secret lair somewhere in Arabia, Talon reports on the encounter with Superman. Raish is unsurprised by these developments. He foresaw the Man of Steel's appearance as inevitable. Talon asks whether the operation in London, due to take place in three days' time, will still go ahead. Raish says that everything is proceeding as he intended, and that he has a plan that will see the end of Superman and anyone else that tries to stand in his way. Superman and Wayne, now decked out in a new Batsuit looking not much like the 60s Batman outfit, much more like a souped-up version of the Neil Adams-designed costume from the 70s, journey to Themyscira, with soups flying and Batman using a bat glider. On the journey, Batman tells the story of a superhero called the Wonder Woman, an almost legendary figure she fought alongside the Allies during the Second World War. Many figured her to be a character created for propaganda purposes, but, through patented Batmanning, the world's greatest detective has discovered that she is very real and has traced her to Paradise Island. 
Batman and Superman arrive on the island, but the Amazons are hostile to their presence. The pair are the first men to journey to the island in a long time, and men, they say, usually bring trouble. Both are taken captive and brought before Diana, now the ruler of the island since her mother died. Batman tells Superman that he recognizes her as Wonder Woman and questions her on her past. Diana responds that while she fought for the Allies in the Second World War, she couldn't reconcile the level of destruction brought about by the dropping of atomic bombs on Japan that ended the conflict. She returned to Themyscira to live a life away from mankind. Superman seems surprised that Diana didn't appear to have aged a day since the 1940s. Asking Batman about this, the Dark Knight responds... I've just travelled to a hidden island with an alien demigod to stop a 600-year-old man from nuking the planet. Nothing surprises me. Superman explains to Diana about Raish's impending nuclear display and how they have to stop him. He says that the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that she witnessed during World War II are nothing compared to what Raish intends to unleash on the planet. Worldwide destruction from which nowhere will be safe, not even Themyscira. The Amazons are sceptical, wondering whether Superman's story might be a ruse to lure Diana away from the island. It is decided that, in order to prove the veracity of their claims, Wonder Woman will interrogate Superman with the truth lasso. An intense interrogation ensues. Undergoing the lasso is a physically demanding experience in this iteration. But Superman's story is proved to be legit. With the fate of the world at stake, Wonder Woman agrees to go with them. Not a moment too soon either, as Raisha's raid on the London facility is imminent. The trio journeys to London in Wonder Woman's invisible jet, arriving upon the raid in progress. They make light work of many League of Shadows ninjas on guard as they fight their way into the building. Reaching the centre of the complex, they find Raish along with Talon. Superman tells him to give up the fight as Raish and his remaining ninjas are no match for him, Wonder Woman and Batman. But Raish just laughs and snaps his fingers. A pair of monstrous mutated beasts emerge. Superman asks Batman what they are, and Batman responds that they must be some kind of mutation created by a combination of twisted science and Lazarus pits. As the two beasts slowly edge towards Superman and Wonder Woman, Talon moves forward to square off against Batman. Looks like I've evened the odds, Raish retorts. A fierce fight ensues. The ferocity of Raish's beasts is immense, momentarily catching Superman and Wonder Woman off guard. Batman, meanwhile, has met his match in Talon, who appears to know the Dark Knight's moves like the back of his hand. Batman is taken aback by this, but fights furiously, eventually getting Talon on the ropes, as Superman and Wonder Woman simultaneously overpower Raish's mutants. At one point during the fight, Talon trips, and as he falls to the ground, Batman manages to pull off his mask. To Batman's shock and horror, the face staring back at him is none other than that of Dick Grayson. More Dick Grayson for played, Jack. Played by Burt Ward. I figured, I figured. Robin is still very much alive, apparently brought back to life and warped into evil by the Lazarus Pit. What do you make of my new sidekick, Detective? Race quips to the stunned Batman before Talon takes advantage of the Dark Knight's momentary surprise and knocks him unconscious. At this point, Raish gives a hand signal, and a League of Shadows ninja fires a glowing red arrow at Superman. Wonder Woman attempts to intercept it, but fails to make it in time. The arrow strikes Supes, and he falls to the floor, screaming. What the hell have you done to him? Wonder Woman asks. Raish reveals that Superman has been shot with a red kryptonite arrow. I knew I could never kill the Man of Steel. No one can. Not even you, Diana, he responds. Superman's eyes then begin to glow red, and he launches himself at Wonder Woman in a blind rage. The distraction gives Raish, Talon, and the League of Shadows the opportunity to escape, along with the last component of the device. 
Wonder Woman fights with the enraged Superman. The battle is fierce, and Superman, in his compromised state, isn't pulling any punches. Batman slowly comes to, and realizing what is going on, he springs into action. He takes a vial from his utility belt, which he throws towards Supes. It breaks on impact, with a plume of smoke engulfing Superman and Wonder Woman. The gas should neutralize the kryptonite, Batman shouts, because he's Batman, and he's thought of everything. (laughs) Superman staggers, and Batman explains to Wonder Woman that they need to back off and let him get the red kryptonite out of his system. Superman's good conscience begins to battle with his enraged self, and we get a repeat of the Superman versus Superman fight from Superman 3, the one good scene in that movie. Correct. Back on the invisible jet, the Justice League discusses their plan of action now that Raish has escaped. Batman reveals that he placed a tracker on Talon before he was KO'd. Connecting a gadget in his utility belt to a terminal in the invisible jet, the trio discover the location of Raish's base and punch in their coordinates. We cut to Raish's base, where League of Shadows members are loading the final component into the device. Talon discovers the tracker and tells Raish. While Ghoul lambasts the henchman for his carelessness, he says that it ultimately does not matter as his plan is so near to completion. Nevertheless, he instructs his forces to ready countermeasures in anticipation of the Justice League's arrival. During the journey, Superman talks with Batman about the re-emergence of Robin. The Dark Knight is obviously consumed by the discovery. He blamed himself when he thought Robin had died, but this is much worse. Superman tells Batman that it was not his fault, reminding him that the world would have ended had he and Robin not intervened back in the 60s. Their conversation is interrupted, however, when Wonder Woman reveals they are coming up on the base. Just then, a surface-to-air missile flies past the invisible jet, narrowly missing the vehicle. Raish's countermeasures are in effect. Wonder Woman's skillful piloting means that the projectile is avoided, only for a second missile to strike the wing, forcing the jet into a tailspin. Our heroes dramatically exit the descending vehicle to find themselves outside Raish's fortress. Once again, our heroes fight their way through, showing more drive and determination than ever before. As they near the centre of the base, Batman is cut off by Talon. Superman and Wonder Woman pause, turning back to help their friend, but Batman tells them to go on and continue with the mission as he turns to face his former partner. Superman and Wonder Woman reach Raish's central control room. Raish sets off more of his mutant monstrosities on them, but Superman and Wonder Woman prove too tough for them. Spying Raish's device, Superman destroys it with his heat vision, while Wonder Woman duels a sword-wielding Raish. Meanwhile, Batman fights with Talon, who taunts him mercilessly. Batman says that he believes Talon is conflicted. He says that there is still good within him, regardless of what the Lazarus Pit has done to him, that the Robin he knew was stronger in spirit than any twisted alchemy could be. As the fight continues, Talon seems more and more in emotional turmoil. He fights boldly against Batman, but can't bring himself to deliver a killing blow. He relents to his former mentor. Please, Bruce, I don't want this anymore. I'm sorry. There's nothing to apologise for, old chum. Batman responds. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, old chum. We return to Raish's control room. While Raish is a formidable swordsman, he is no match for Wonder Woman, and she has him bested easily. It's too late, Raish, she says as he yields his weapon. I know, Ghoul responds. I started the missile's launch cycle six minutes ago. In a quarter of an hour, Washington, D.C. will be radioactive ash. He begins to laugh maniacally, but is silenced by a knockout punch from Wonder Woman. She turns to see Superman take off, blasting through the ceiling of the building. Superman flies faster than a speeding bullet in the direction of the bomb, as Wonder Woman, now joined by Batman and Talon, watch helplessly from a monitor in Raish's lair. We cut to the Pentagon, where the incoming warhead has been detected. People are panicking, talking about counter-strikes and evacuation plans, with one official noting that it is too late for civilians to escape, and they are all doomed. 
Catching up with the missile, Superman pushes against its nose, using all of his available strength to halt its course. The struggle is Herculean, the exertion of the Man of Steel phenomenal, but eventually he turns the trajectory of the missile downwards towards the sea. Blacking out from the effort, he falls with it, into the nuclear blast that is triggered as the bomb hits the ocean. There is a momentary pause. The audience watches the explosion, looking like something out of an old military test footage. Then, a single figure bursts out of the water and into the sky. We see that Superman has survived, replenishing his strength with the sun's rays. In the control room, Batman, Talon and Wonder Woman cheer when they see that the Man of Steel has made it. Superman returns, and thanks the others for their help. He asks if he can call on them again in times of dire trouble. Batman says he's thought of this, and suggests that they should make some kind of ongoing arrangement. Two days later, Clark Kent enters the offices of the Daily Planet to be lambasted again by Perry White. Where the hell have you been, Clark? Superman stops a madman from destroying a bomb on Washington, and you're nowhere to be seen. Clark feigns ignorance to the whole event, pretending that he was unaware of the impending nuclear Armageddon, and says that he has been off work because of food poisoning. For the dodgy takeout. <laughs> Caused by the bad takeout. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He cited at the beginning of the movie. Oh my god. By God, Clark, sometimes I wonder if you have any interest in the fate of the world. Superman smiles to himself as he sees a think piece titled Superhero League Brings Justice Where Others Cannot. We see Diana sitting back on her throne in Thermoscira, but she now has a communication device with the Superman and Batman logos on. She will no longer remain aloof from the rest of the world. We see Batman on top of a building in Gotham looking down. Dick Grayson walks up next to him in a much darker and more armoured version of the Robin costume. He is no longer Talon, he is now Nightwing. Superman puts down the newspaper and asks if anyone wants coffee. The newsday begins at the Daily Planet. The world is safe once again. Then he has more takeout and gets the shits. <laughs> Superman gets Super the shits. Shit. Super Super shit. shit. Faster than a speeding bullet. <laughs> oh, wow. That's very good. That's very George Lucas. I can imagine John Williams, a certain brand of choral fireworks going on when there's like, they're still good in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. I like it. It's going to be better than what Zack Snyder digs up, I'm sure. So. Correct. Jesus. Digs out of the crack of his arse. <laughs> After he's, he's had a bad takeout. He's not directing it anymore. No, Joss Whedon's oh, no, taken over. Yeah, yeah but Joss Whedon's script for Wonder Woman, so oh, who knows? Did he? Is there any superhero movie he hasn't scripted recently? Uh, no. Hellboy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I mean, very, very di- again. Okay, Matrix, a lot of similar qualities. These two films, so fucking different. <laughs> They're gonna be so fucking different. Over to you, Aquaman. Right. So this is uh, Aquaman, and our pitch for Superman Returns. The story opens on a quote lifted from 1978 Superman, as Jor-El reminds us, "They can be great people, Kal-el. They wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way." Those last words echo ominously as we cross dissolve from the darkness of space to flashing camera lights outside a newly constructed skyscraper. LexCorp logos emblazon a platform and a podium steps up in front of the press pit. In the crowd is Daily Planet reporter John Corbin with cameraman Jimmy Olsen. A dark-haired young man in a smart suit strides confidently to the podium and smiles politely. Amid the sea of flashing lights, the gentleman introduces himself as Lex Luthor Jr. and proudly opens the new headquarters of the extremely successful and lucrative LexCorp. Questions pour in from several journalists about the company's nefarious past and Luthor's father. Luthor handles each question charismatically, reminding everyone that he is very different to his late father and that the recent successes of LexCorp should speak to that. Jimmy mutters to Corbin that he doesn't buy it and that Luthers are all the same. 
Another reporter shouts out about the decade-long absence of Superman, which causes a look of frustration from the man on stage. Almost losing his cool, Luther Jr. goes on a bit of a rant about how the Man of Steel abandoned Metropolis, abandoned the world, and that no one has seen him for over ten years. And as he was personally away at university during Superman's golden years, he never witnessed any acts of heroism which genuinely helped Metropolis, adding the crime rate is now lower than ever before. Jimmy is clearly upset, but Corbin reacts in a similar way to the rest of the supporters, with mild agreement. Luther thanks everybody for coming out and leaves the stage. Corbin, making notes on a pad, says he's going to see Lois and will see Jimmy later. Jimmy, suddenly quite sullen, nods his head and stands in the slowly dissipating crowd. We cut to a farm deep in the Midwest with one dirt road leading away from huge stretches of land, a barn and a modest house. The bearded farmer is driving his tractor around the field, but its spluttering engine causes the vehicle to come to a stop. The man sighs and climbs down to look at the damage. Opening the bonnet, or hood, I guess, in America, we see a clearly mangled pipe venting steam. Reaching out, the farmer pinches the broken part, putting it back into place. As the camera pans around, we reveal the farmer in question is other than Clark Kent. Looking up at the sky, he wipes his brow before getting back in the tractor and continuing his work. Back at the Daily Planet headquarters, Olsen shows his pictures to editor Perry White, who grouchily explains the headline on the front page will be a bright future for LexCorp, and that Jimmy's pictures are great. Jimmy explains that he will be off for a week of holiday. Perry chews on his cigar and stares the photographer down. Jimmy, much older and more confident than when we were first introduced to him, holds the gaze. White waves a hand and tells his employee to scram. Before Olsen leaves, Perry asks where he's going. Olsen explains he's going to Kansas, which which confuses Perry immensely before he loses interest. Later that day, we see several shady-looking criminals hanging around the docks. Guarding a parked car, they converse about crime evolving from open and petty to secretive, high-profit and secure thanks to several corrupt officials. An expensive black car pulls up and the chauffeur opens the back door for his passenger, Lex Luthor Jr. The thugs similarly open the passenger door and a well-dressed criminal steps out. The two men talk at length about the standing agreement between Luthor, several business magnates and a swath of criminal operatives. Luther loses his cool and beats the crime lord with his bare hands, continually repeating, Do you know who I am? Knowing how powerful and connected Luther is, the onlooking criminals don't intervene. A few days later, we see Jimmy in a car following a long country road. He gets out, checking a map, which gets caught in the wind and blows away. Sighing, he steps up to the quaint farmhouse and knocks on the door. As it opens, he explains he is lost and looking for directions. The voice responds from behind the screen door, Jimmy? Recognising the voice, Jimmy opens the door and exclaims, Mr. Kent? Oh boy, am I glad to have finally found you. Clark asks exactly how did Jimmy manage to find him, to which Jimmy responds that he's been working for a newspaper for years and has picked up a thing or two about investigation. Offering his guest a drink, Clark invites Jimmy inside. The two friends catch up and reminisce, Jimmy explaining that in Superman's absence, crime is largely non-existent in Metropolis. Sipping his lemonade, Clark says that's great and tentatively asks how Lois is. In a strange tone, Jimmy explains that Lois wasn't the same after Clark left town, probably because Superman disappeared around the same time, but she eventually settled down and married one of their finest news reporters, John Corbin. Jimmy adds an unintentional extra sting to this revelation by detailing that Corbin stepped into Kent's old job. Clark puts on a brave face and says that's wonderful news. Jimmy says it really was. He then states that Lois was covering a story in another city and was caught up in a terrorist attack by a crazy gang leader. Meeting Clark's shocked gaze, Jimmy says he's been looking for Kent ever since to break the news to him. Quietly containing his rage, Clark asks Jimmy which city, to which Jimmy replies, Gotham. Cut to a gloomy rundown city with an antiquated Art Deco feel. Everything seems quiet as the streetlights flicker. A small explosion blows the doors of a pillared building open, and three men rush inside. 
Torches and crowbars in hand, they make their way through the bank and go about breaking into the main vault. One of the criminals worriedly talks about police response time, but another says the police aren't what they need to worry about. Opening the vault, the men funnel inside and begin raiding locker boxes. As they do, a small disc slides into the room and smoke pours out. In the chaos, a dark figure moves through the smoke and beats up the criminals. The final bank robber alone spins wildly, screaming that he isn't afraid of the bat. Batman, played by Michael fucking Keaton. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> yep. And we should mention... It's the Battle of the Bats. A, Tom, do you want to say the extra bit in our little pitch right at the end there? What we also have is that, obviously, in our secret part of the new cast bit, we have Michael Keaton as Batman. And we also have... Additional themes on the composition by Danny Elfman. Oh, it's shit. a John Williams Danny Elfman tag team okay. on the composition. Back to the pitch. Back to the pitch. Batman steps in front of the villain, but before he can throw a punch, both men feel a jet of air dispersing the smoke. As the vault clears, a, a brightly suited, clean shaven Superman is revealed, stood in the doorway saying, Gentlemen, the bank's opening hours are nine to five. Using his super speed, Superman moves the criminals outside and secures them at a lamppost by bending their crowbars into restraints. Barging past Superman, Batman heads to the Batmobile parked outside. Superman calls out to Batman, but he ignores him and drives off. In the Batmobile, Batman contacts Alfred and asks him to run anything they have on Superman through the Batcomputer. His train of thought is cut off as he sees Superman stood in the street before him. Hitting the brakes, Batman brings the vehicle to a stop mere centimetres from Superman's bright red boots. Batman looks exasperated as Superman peers through the window and says, Sorry, you left so fast, I didn't get a chance to introduce myself. Exiting the Batmobile, the two heroes size each other up. More specifically, Batman analyses the Man of Steel and Superman waits for a polite moment to talk. Batman finally says, I thought you were dead. Superman explains that he had to leave for a while after he realised he couldn't have a normal human life and mankind didn't seem to need him as much. Batman smirks and tells Superman to look around. He then adds that he thought Superman's powers included extremely powerful hearing and awareness, to which Superman begrudgingly explains that he used Kryptonian crystals to effectively create an isolation tank covering a large area. The Cape Crusader challenges Superman again, saying he ran away and hid. Superman openly admits he made a mistake, but intends to rectify this now. His pleasant demeanour shifts somewhat as he asks about the incident two years ago and the death of several citizens, including Lois Lane. Batman explains about the Joker's poisonous balloons and that he did what he could, but the Joker is gone now. Clearly deflated, Superman thanks Batman for the information and explains he will put things right. As he's about to leave, Batman calls out that he should get a new suit, that times have changed and that people might not respond well to the return of Superman. Kal-El merely smiles and says, I don't hide who I am, Mr. Wayne, and flies away. Batman is left stunned and angrily turns on his heel, gets into the Batmobile and drives away. We cut to a graveyard. The morning sun rising over Metropolis in the background. Hovering over a particular gravestone is Superman in a sleek, newly designed suit. He talks softly about not being around to help people and the life he could have had. As he goes over his regrets and mistakes, a voice calls out from behind him saying, Get the hell away from her. Superman casually turns to see an emotional John Corbin. Aware of who the man is and what he and Lois had, thanks to Jimmy, Superman steps toward John. Corbin pulls away and chastises Superman, explaining the world doesn't need him and is functioning fine without him. Superman tries to apologise and put things right, but Corbin explains nothing he can ever do will fix the messes made by his arrival and then absence. Hearing a scream, Superman excuses himself and flies off. Corbin watches the hero leave, furious at his return. From a few establishing shots, we can see that there has been a major car crash and a woman is pinned in the seat of the car, as the seatbelt mechanism is mangled. At the same time, fuel is leaking and slowly makes its way toward an open flame from another section of the wreckage. As police and fire crews arrive, the car is dragged away from the flame, the door is then ripped from its hinges, and the seatbelt snapped off as Superman helps the young lady out of the car. 
Onlookers gasp and chatter at the hero's return as Superman helps the lady to the firefighters explain that despite the circumstances, she was right to wear a seatbelt. Seeing the crowd watching on, some of whom have never seen Superman in the flesh, he calms the crowd and explains he's back before flying away. The door violently swings open as Lex Luthor Jr. storms into his office, newspaper in hand. As the door slams shut behind him, he throws the paper down, pours himself a neat glass of whiskey and downs it. Looking at the headline, Superman Returns, he hurls the glass at the fireplace before stabilising himself on his desk. Mumbling about the shadows of his father's victories and obstacles, Luther heads to a portrait of his father hanging on the wall before knocking it to the ground, revealing a hidden wall safe. Spinning the dial, he opens the safe and a glowing green light fills the room. In trance, Luther turns his head slowly before taking a deep breath. A buzzing noise comes from an intercom and the secretary explains the reporter wants to speak with Luther. Closing the safe, he makes his way over to the desk, picks up the phone and states he will not be disturbed. At that moment, John Corbin barges into his office. Stunned by the brazen attitude, Luther doesn't initially react. Corbin, realising he hasn't been immediately thrown out, continues into the room, observing the portrait on the floor. Sitting in front of Luther, Corbin pulls out a dixophone and asks Luther for a comment on Superman's return. Luther reaches out, turns the recorder off and responds, You're kidding, right? Corbin continues, pushes the connection between Superman and Luther's father, asks if he thinks the hero will be of help or of hindrance to the city. Surprised by this, Luther sits himself down and states that surely everyone sees the return of Superman as a positive for the entire city. Corbin counters that the crime level dropped in Superman's absence and that his return will only attract more extreme crime and violence. To highlight his point, he brings up the example of the Joker in Gotham shortly after the arrival of Batman. Now calm and collected, Luther steps around the office, spinning the idea of of Superman as a negative, but that no human has the power to stand up to such an adversary. Looking over at the clearly emotional Corbin, Luther tests the water by putting out carefully worded feeler statements and manipulating Corbin into revealing personal information about his deceased wife. Luther asks if Corbin had the opportunity to stop Superman, would he? Corbin, good at heart, doesn't take the bait and states that just because he's upset at the return of a man who could have prevented his wife's death doesn't mean he would harm him. Luther, picking up the whiskey decanter, pauses before saying, I can work with that, and brings the glass crashing down on the reporter's head. The office floor of the Daily Planet is in chaos as reporters run around, and at the epicentre is Perry White screaming about how no one knew about Superman's return. Every employee that flies past him gets a pointed finger and an instruction. Where has he been? Is he back for good? What's with the new look? How does he feel about LexCorp? We need answers, people. We are then treated to a montage of incidents where Superman can be of assistance. Admittedly, most of them are low-key public relations, but those in need are extremely grateful. The final incident is two estate agents and seven prospective buyers looking around an office building. The structure suddenly cracks, but before anyone inside can suffer a grisly fate, Superman swoops in and saves each individual. He then gives a small talk on construction safety and says he's surprised that the estate agent would be selling such a dangerous property. One of the realtors, still in shock, exclaims that they would never go ahead with this, but they were under pressure to turn over sales fast. The second realtor gives a scolding look, but Superman urges the young lady to continue. She explains that several new builds aren't up to code, having wrangled safety specs from openly corrupt officials. Realising this idyllic metropolis is built on a corrupt foundation, Superman demands to know the company responsible. The other estate agent, having sized up the bigger threat, legal repercussions or Superman, says he won't be able to prove it, but everyone knows who is responsible. We cut to the LexCorp headquarters. The X of a giant logo marks the central office wherein Lex Luthor Jr. is stood behind a desk, chillingly talking about millions of dollars of stocks as if they were pennies. Behind him, Superman hovers into view. Aware of his guests, Luthor explains he will call back and hangs up. He then beckons the Kryptonian inside and Superman flies to an adjoining balcony. Luthor opens the door and Superman calmly strolls inside. 
Luther immediately offers Superman a drink, but he refuses, going on to offer his condolences for the loss of his father and saying he would never judge someone by the actions of their parent. Luther smiles and corrects him by saying he will be well within his rights to judge his father's action, that everyone else does. But if he is to be compared, it should be noted how he has surpassed his father in every way. Out of spite, Luther adds he feels that he has surpassed Superman too, being seen as Metropolis's saviour. Giving the young man the benefit of the doubt, Superman asks if Luther is aware of the inferior buildings LexCorp is constructing. Luther arrogantly says there is nothing that LexCorp he isn't aware of. Superman says, so you openly admit you're putting people in harm's way. Luther explains that LexCorp raises and destroys entire industries in a morning. Building is nothing to him. Luther snarls that his father never dreamed of the wealth his son now possesses, that his obsessive desire for land was delusional. Cementing this with not enough space to build, destroy what's just been sold, claim the insurance and build on top of the rubble. He gloats that the amount of shell companies he operates makes it difficult to trace back to LexCorp, and therefore even harder to trace back to them. Superman says people are smart, they will find out. Luther doubts it and states he now has a way to deal with all of his problems in one fell swoop. Puzzled by this, Superman frowns. Luther continues explaining that Superman's return is bad for business and conjures memories of his father that he doesn't need. Subsequently, he needed a way to take Superman out of the picture as well as effectively replacing him as the man who saved the city. Superman asks how he's planning on achieving that, to which Luther cryptically explains that Superman will know soon enough. At that moment, Superman hears an explosion in the distance. Seeing the Kryptonian process the sound, Luther sneers, I call him Metallo. Superman races to the source of the explosion and sees a man outside a power station throwing explosive barrels, unflinching as the flames surround him. Superman exhales powerfully, putting out the flames and shouts to the fleeing employees to get to safety. As the man turns to him, Superman realises it's John Corbin. We see a POV shot with a heads-up display detailing Superman as an enemy and prime target. Corbin, in a recognised voice, mocks the Man of Steel, saying this sort of power could fix every problem in the world. Superman counters with, not every problem, both of us know that. Angered, Corbin throws a barrel, but Superman uses his laser vision to incinerate it. Superman then asks how lashing out like this is going to fix anything. But Corbin is seemingly gone, overridden by Metallo's programming. The two powerful beings fight. Being the first superpowered fight in over a decade, Superman seems slower to respond than before. Metallo notices this and says the Man of Steel is old, weak and unnecessary in these modern times. Superman lands a solid punch, dislocating Metallo's jaw and exposing a metal endoskeleton. Shocked by this, Superman asks, what have they done to you? Metallo responds with a punch and says they've given him power. Superman knows he's been away for a while, but feels distinctly weaker than before. Every punch feels less effective than the last. As news helicopters arrive, Metallo gains the upper hand and begins wailing on the Kryptonian. The fight is intense and brutal, but Superman is clearly at a disadvantage. Another helicopter comes into view, this time with a LexCorp logo slapped on the side. Landing, Lex Luthor Jr. steps out and walks closer to the chaotic fray. Metallo leans in close to Superman and says if he'd been around, Lois wouldn't have died. In between heavy punches and kicks, he says his heart was taken away, but thanks to Luther, he's got a new one. Punching at Metallo's chest, Superman is struck down by a green pulsing light coming from Metallo's chest. Kryptonite, the alien hero explains. Metallo straightens up and laughs, noting that his new power source will never fail him and keep him running long after Superman is dead. All Luther needs to do is spin the story and Metallo will replace him as Metropolis's protector. Superman asks where all this is coming from, that he doesn't know Corbin well, but if Lois married him, he must be a good man. Glitching slightly, Metallo reads off a monotone suborder which overrides personal objectives. Sensing that Corbin is being manipulated by whatever Luther has done to him, Superman flies into the power station itself. Metallo calls him a coward and follows him. Luring Metallo over to a heavy loading machine, Superman uses his laser vision to cut a chain, sending molten lead down onto the android. 
Corbin struggles to free himself as Superman then utilises his breath to cool the metal. With the kryptonite safely contained behind a layer of lead, Superman feels his powers returning and pummels the cyborg before using his X-ray vision to locate what appears to be a central processor and punches the casing before removing the chip. Falling to his knees, Corbin deactivates. Luther paces outside but is immediately furious as he sees Superman walk out with a beaten Corbin over his shoulder. Luther screams at the superhero, saying he has won nothing. Luther is still the city's future, both raising and crushing it as he sees fit. All of this is caught by the circling news choppers, but Luther is consumed by his rage. Face to face with Superman, Luther says he will make it his life's work to destroy Superman. Knowing the most cutting thing to say, Superman says, Better men than you have tried, and walks away, leaving a defeated Luther in the dust. Arriving at the scientific research centre Star Labs, Superman asks if the scientists can do anything to restore Corbin. They explain that the programming and body replacement is extensive. They may be able to restore him, but he will never be the same. Superman says he knows a resourceful man who may be able to help. On a rooftop in Gotham, Batman glides down to the illuminated bat signal. Superman steps out from behind the light and apologises for not calling ahead, but that he had heard that this was a good way to get Batman's attention. Batman comments that he likes the new suit. Superman asks for assistance regarding John Corbin, and Batman says he'll look into it. Turning away, he says this doesn't make them friends. Superman says he's a friendly guy, and that Batman will come around. Stepping up to the ledge, Batman says, Maybe one day, Clark. Superman seems genuinely shocked. Batman replied, No x-ray vision, just a good detective, and steps off the ledge, disappearing into the night. Smiling, Superman looks up and flies into the night sky. Soaring off into the atmosphere, Gotham shrinks beneath his feet. Flying in space, the sun rises ahead of him and he greets it with a smile, flying off into the sunrise as the score triumphantly plays over the title followed by the end credits. Boosh! I just love the fact that we've both gone and basically bait and switched and done a Batman film as well, which is kind of amusing. We hinted at some Batman in there, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there we go. That was fun. I shall start off by quizzing the psychic nutritionists and your... 80s JLA movie, which is something yeah, I never yeah, yeah. never thought I'd say. The fact that I mentioned the 80s is kind of where I want to start. Tying in with Adam West and Linda Carter and everybody, it feels quite 70s, bordering on 60s. And I wonder if you'd have a almost, I dare say it, similar to the original Superman 3, like a tonal problem of balancing the kind of the kind of more mature kind of stuff and the super duper camp because you don't go full Adam West. Yeah. You have a couple of moments and obviously balancing the kind of shift in tone in the decades. And as we, we talked about, that's when Frank Miller's showing up and in, in ruining comics for everybody basically and making everything grim, dark and terrible. So how do you think you would balance the kind of tone and the fact that this is kind of a seventies movie in a lot of ways, but in the eighties and with the star of the 60s and the 70s and kind of balancing that whole thing. I mean, early to mid-80s is still pretty neon. If you look at the toy ranges oh, and everything yeah, like yeah. that going on, it isn't really till the late 80s and the 90s and everything starts going very dark. I think the the 89 Batman movie was a bit of a tonal shift on that, actually, because that kind of inspired a lot of stuff. And then in the 90s, everything was just too dark and everybody was horrible and and all that. But I think we're a few years before that still. I also think we um the way that our characters were written was sort of meant to address that it's this idea that they aren't the same characters that you meet in i mean obviously they are but enough time has passed to have developed these things that's a big part of why the robin thing is in there is the idea that 
and he addresses the 60s and it's this idea that they fight Ra's al Ghul at the end of the 60s and all 60s campy optimism is over at that point because Robin dies and there's a very symbolic thing there of Robin dies Batman stops being Batman he becomes a bit darker just because there is this dark turn in his personal life as for Linda Carter Wonder Woman we deliberately jettisoned seasons two and three of the Wonder Woman show because in Wonder Woman season one is set during World War Two and is much more grounded. Season two is when it gets campy and silly, and you don't get the dis- you don't get the disco theme until until the third the third one. So we really wanted to just jettison that and go with the idea that this is the earlier Wonder Woman. So we have tried to take them in a slightly different direction as characters. They are nods, and I think having them there makes sense because you don't have to do a whole load of setup. We don't have to, which is one of the big problems, I think, with Zack Snyder's movie, is that these are characters that haven't been established, so we now have to establish them. We have I know to... multiple people who have seen Batman v Superman and don't know that Wonder Woman is in it. Yeah. Who's she? Why is she here? Yeah. They never call her Wonder Woman. They never say that out loud. Yeah. If you don't know the lasso of truth, then that's yeah. basically the only signature thing that she has. She's just a woman with yeah. a sword and shield. But and the great thing there is that you have fairly recent and and culturally culturally established ones. And as for the the decade, I think that the the eighties, especially the early eighties, as Stuart said, is kind of heavy on nostalgia. And you look at what George Lucas did with Star Wars and how Star Wars is a 70s movie or an 80s movie, whichever way you want to look at it, but it calls back to 40s and 50s movies. And tonally, we really wanted this to feel like a superhero serial done. And you mentioned Indiana Jones and that kind of serial kind of tone as well. And that's a huge influence because the serials weren't campy in a way that 60s Batman is campy and there's this incredibly fast pacing that we've tried to keep up as well and I think the idea is that like Indiana Jones it would be a movie that would feel like something from a foregone time but way back so that it wasn't retro this could almost feel like a 40s serial I mean Orson Welles wanted to make a Superman movie. I'd like to hope that some of that Superman movie he wanted to make. He wanted to make a Superman movie, Batman movie. He loved comics. And I would hope that some of what he would have wanted to do there would have been channeled into this. So that was a big inspiration on it anyway. Interesting. Interesting. And I couldn't help but smirk that the fact that Matt and I, as you were reading that, smirked at Talon because, of course, Talon is a thing. For those of who have read the New 52 Batman run and the Nightwing stuff as well. Talon is a reference to the Court of Owls. And as soon as you said Talon, I was like, I wonder if that's Dick Grayson. That would be interesting. And Matt and I had a little moment where we looked across the room at each other like, hmm, yeah, yep. we know what's up here. Yeah, we think where this is going. And when it came back, I was like, yep, 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 yep. yep. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's, it's weird because that doesn't happen for another 20 years yeah, after yeah. your movie. And I don't think it was a conscious decision on your part oh, in particular. It, it wasn't. It, well, we sat around for ages going, what are we going to call him? Because the way we wrote it, we originally had... You could have gone like Red Hood or something like yeah, that. Or, but we, or, yeah, or, or the Arkham Knight thing when it's the same story told million times. We deliberated Red Hood and then decided we... Um, a vicious escalation of Robin is to Talons yeah. and Claws. Like, that makes sense. Yeah, and we just... I mean, the Court of Owls talent also looks a bit ninja-y. So oh, definitely, yeah. So yeah. yep. things that you could take from there to make that work. He, does, he wouldn't look out of place in the League of Shadows. Totally, I yep. agree. Over to 
the Aquaman. Hello. Hey. I feel like I know we've had this question before and I've had this problem and I understand that you guys in this, as we said, quantum leap imaginary world where you have full creative control over everything. I feel like the studio would be like, it has Batman in it. Mark it the fuck out of Batman. It needs to be called Batman and Superman, Super Friends, Justice Pals, whatever the fuck you want to call it. You can't have that surprise of Batman. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out there. My um, argument would be twofold. One, okay, Nicholas Meyer being director. Nicholas Meyer and director on Star Trek Two and Star Trek Six hid so much from things like marketing. He got things away with stuff you wouldn't believe. I'm pretty he didn't sure do the Khan thing. Yeah, exactly. My name is Khan. <laughs> Thank you, Benedict. I'm pretty sure you don't. I mean, you do, might see something, but you don't give away that. Oh fuck! Spock dies in this film. It's it's again. I'm not saying he's in control of the marketing, but I genuinely think he's the kind of guy who can handle this kind of stuff and make it. Uh, it takes a franchise that's good and makes it better, and comes back to it from a different perspective. Because Nicholas Meyer, not really a Star Trek fan, made two of the best Star Trek films. <laughs> anyway, so the reason I would say about the marketing thing and Batman, most importantly, and the same thing I'd say to fucking Zack Snyder, this is a Superman sequel. It is a Superman story that features another hero. Hence why these aren't... This isn't a Batman versus Superman. This isn't Batman and Superman. This is Batman and a hint at a wider universe. It's something bigger. We've seen Batman as a huge success of a film a couple of years beforehand, but this is just an inclusion into that universe. It's not, this is a Batman and Superman story. It's just literally, we can go on somewhere from here later, but let's just reintroduce us to Superman returning as opposed to Superman returns and meets Batman. Does that make sense? I'd have a couple of questions following on from that, if I if I may. My first one would be, uh, would, was this an intention on your part for there to be a Batman-Superman shared cinematic universe? Do you envisage that there would be a film down that would the be, line? And we'd go down David? everything. We'd, we'd want to go 90s with um, Flash, because the TV series is really good in the 90s. And maybe I don't think you could do Green Lantern or Martian Manhunter really very well, but definitely bring in a new Wonder Woman from the 90s. And I think, again, not as much as I hate to say girl power and stuff, because I think that was warped into something very chaotic. But again, I think the 90s is a good place for it. And again, the idea as well that Superman returns to a time when films get darker, comics get darker, and says, no, 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 you don't need this. Your heroes can be just heroes. Straight lace heroes. Is do you think there is an issue there with Michael Keaton Batman though, and the which is I mean Michael Keaton Batman isn't as, it's visually very dark. It's not as dark as people remember, but it certainly is a much darker tone than Christopher Reeve Superman. Well, that's why I think it was a nice um, juxtaposition. The fact is that it's in it, Batman doesn't leave Gotham. He's still in Gotham all the time. He's in his perfect in his wheelhouse, as it were. And then Superman turns up with this bright, ridiculous, and it's in his seventies costume, saying "Hello." And it's like the bank here. I was a nine to five. He's he's very much the um, the beacon of hope. And it's like you do not fit in here anymore. Look around. This place is a fucking state, and it's literally the same not set, but the same city as the one in in the Burton film. And it's just like this is not what you are anymore. But that was great in the seventies. It's like what are you doing? And that's why Batman just ignores him. Always good part of him every time. It's like what what is happening? So again, it is, it's also a statement to the audience as well, saying, this is Superman. This is what Superman has always been. He's the the beacon of hope. He's not a moody git. So we can have a moody git in Batman, again, as a hint of it. And now, again, that's what we do whole, you know, I'm a friendly guy. We might be friends one day. It's like, well, whatever, maybe. And again, like Michael, yeah, Michael Keaton being like key ad-libbing and just, just buggering off and stuff. I think it's one of the things that, again, again, I, I'm, again that's why I've said it, this is going to be also a good sequel to Man of Steel, because... 
the problem with Man of Steel was like, oh, we need a Batman film. Oh, Batman's in it. Now it's a Batman film. It's like, no, 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 no. We just need a Superman film to explore this character. No, no, Batman. And being a third film as well, I can see why it could be a nice Batman and Superman adventure. But we wanted this to be a return of Superman and return to a really hopeful, optimistic, nostalgic earlier time. So it's 90s looking back on 70s. Much of the same way you guys are looking back on the... 60s from the from the 80s effectively and it's saying no this is this is what it used to be it isn't always it's not always guns and pouches and and darkness it was a just a nice guy having a great time and then that's why we have the luther character being basically gordon gecko and alec baldwin's character in glenn gary glenn ross of this ruthless stock peddling wanker who is literally just as manic as his father even though he pretends he isn't if that makes sense yeah that makes sense one thing i wasn't quite clear on and i instantly got kind of kingdom come vibes which is one of my absolute favorite kingdom come i fucking adore kingdom come is just an all-time great we've definitely leached a lot from that it was one of the main discussion points we basically started a discussion on what are our favorite superman kind of stories what all-star superman you mentioned earlier in my top three kingdom Kingdom come Come, also in my top three because kingdom come is probably my top 10 superhero comics ever i agree i I adore that story and the fact you had like old beardy superman hanging out on a farm and trying to trying to convince him to come back and all that sort of thing why did he go away in the first place because of how superman 2 ends okay superman 2 um much in the same way that actually superman 3 in our real universe the real superman 3 um says what do we do with margot kidder what do we do with lois lane it's like well the story's kind of wrapped up he can't be with her what do you do now? And it's the reminder from his point of view as, as a character, like, well, the Kryptonian, the, the only villains are Lex Luthor, who is in prison in one and two, yeah. and the Kryptonians who are after him. So basically, who is he fighting other than saving cats from trees and shit? I mean, I get it that he's, he's seen people from falling over in Niagara Falls and all that sort of stuff. Um, but again, as we try to try and leak out in exposition and, and lines from Corbin mostly about how crime has fallen but it hasn't really it's gone underground kind of thing but the idea that public and again the, the idea that you know Batman comes out and suddenly Joker comes out and meet him and it's it's the line from um, Escalation Escalation yeah from Batman Begins isn't it it's the whole they have they have semi-automatics they have semi-automatics they get automatics they get they get body armour they get all that kind of stuff. yeah exactly it's, it's the escalation mindset so if he goes away he makes things safe because he's worried about the people and then realises oh no I should have maybe not done that Something I just wanted to pick up on that you said there, which we also had a big problem with, is Superman 2 kind of writes you into a corner. It really does. As For exactly the reasons you said, and the lowest line thing is a big problem, because at the end of Superman 2, they basically go, this can never happen, which is something that does not happen, of course, in the Superman comics. He marries them. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that that's a difficult thing, because we kind of, you know, Margot Kidder appears briefly in ours i was gonna say she couldn't in ours because in the late 90s obviously with bipolar stuff she got to get in a dark place and we thought we're not going to try and bring her back for this this is a this is not going to be a good ask so yeah but it's um it's a difficult one with um with that because she is that character is effectively there's nothing else you can do with her and you see that in superman 3 and 4 they really struggle to work out where to go with her so i completely get what you're saying there because that that is a that is a difficult thing well that only leaves us one thing left to do, I suppose. Take off our trousers and reveal our underpants. Which has the name of the winner written on <laughs> Wow. Jack's magic trick. To... Stunning but rude. Not only predicted the team the name. on your penis, Jack? Fucking fit as psychotic. <laughs> Remove your uh, nutritionists <laughs> along the side of my dick. <laughs> I'd be very proud. <laughs> Clearly. I'd be very proud of you. Yeah.
I really enjoyed your bait and switch with Michael Keaton coming in. And like you said, at first, I kind of felt, oh, it's a bit of a Batman cock tease. But the way you defended yourself and saying, this is a sequel to a Superman movie, I think that's perfectly justified. And like that, like you said, that's where Zack Snyder went very wrong. And I really like the way you use Nicholas Meyer in to, to, to kind of justify that in that he can keep secrets. He knows what he's doing. He's the Star Trek guy who doesn't like Star Trek and he bring him on for a comic book project to make a really good comic book movie. And I like what you guys did in particular using Rachel Ghoul and the League of Shadows and obviously that's not a thing because obviously everybody knows that from the Nolan stuff and the League of Shadows and it's all yeah. kind of a, we were a joke at that point. We were a bit more on the, uh, what's the comic called? Trinity, Trinity isn't it? Trinity yeah. was a huge, huge influence for us because that, uh, like speaking of favorite comics, that's one of my favorite comics. Wagner, yeah, I love Matt Wagner, and that feels like the Justice League movie that should have been made. That's fair. I said that on a podcast at the time, funny enough. Yeah, and I'm surprised because you call it the JLA, but it is just the three keystones of the of the league. Because I was kind of half expecting, like, and the Flash turns up, and, the da, 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 and I was like, okay. You could yeah, have called I, it I Trinity or something like that. Put in a thing where it's like at the end, like, and we should look for more people like us. Oh fucking! No. I'm, I'm very, I'm very glad, I'm very glad you didn't. But yeah, the name to me suggested, oh, you might be going for the full five, six, seven person lineup. Not yet. I like that you kept it small with the with the three and didn't like bite off more than you can chew in in a Superman sequel and just go like, here's all of the DC universe at once. Good fucking luck. And of course, I love Dick. You brought Dick back. You had Nightwing at the end. <laughs> Classic. So, with those, with that praise and those questions out of the way, it's time for me to break the tie so far of Season 2. You're both two apiece. Mm. This is Episode 5. Heading into Episode 6, who's going to have the lead? It's going to be Psychic Nutritionists. Oh, hey. Three, two up, gentlemen. Heading into the episode six, fucking fucking Dick Grayson. It wasn't. It wasn't just Nightwing. I, I, like I said, I, I really liked what you guys no, did. Fine, fine. You had the cool kind of Batman Superman. I, I've my favorite moment by far, which kind of reminded me of the Justice League United cartoon, which is amazing and highly underrated, and the dynamic. You, in fact, you both had it, but yours in particular had the dynamic between Bruce and Clark, and them talking to like bruce just appears in the fortress of solitude and he's like oh hey how's it going superman he's like what, what the how did fuck you get here? the fuck did you get in here and like yeah i'm batman how are you he's like oh shit um okay and then yeah and you guys had the see you later clark see you later bruce he's yeah, like I love what? That that's that's that such way. classic and i love their dynamic as like co-leaders of the justice league and batman is always like Shut up, Superman! I'm the leader of the Justice League. I'm I'm the cool one. <laughs> Whatever Batman's you say, the friend. Leader. And it's like, damn <laughs> yeah. it, that makes it worse. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they and uh, I really liked how you guys had the the classic Rachel Gould thing of nice try, detective. He never calls him Batman. No, it's never calls him Bruce. Yeah. Always calls him detective. I'm like, oh, it's, a, it's a nice little touch. So we should probably announce what we're doing next time. We should. So for episode six of season two, we're going. Way back. Oh, this is the, fir- be the furthest we've been back in history ball. so far. We're going all the way back to 1955 Ooh. for Revenge of the Creature. Yes. If you're wondering what the hell that is, 
Um, yeah, technically speaking, Revenge of the Creature, even if you've seen the original and know what it is, you might be going, what? We are talking about the Universal Horror film, one of the end, last of the Universal Horror films, technically. It is the sequel to The Creature from the Black Lagoon, or Creature from the Black Lagoon, technically, you know, the, uh, from 1953. I would guess it might be the least familiar, least watched. So. Yeah. Like, I've never seen it. And I wasn't aware of it until... I didn't know it existed until we started discussing it. I would guess most of our listeners have probably never even heard of it. Most people have heard of The Creature of the Black Lagoon, maybe not even seen that original. So I think this is going to be a really interesting kind of take for us and a a different kind of twist. Uh, It's a very left-field film because I think a lot of people, as you say, won't be familiar with it. But We had a a request for more horror as well. To be fair, we have. And this is it. This is about Enjoy. as old school horror as it gets. If you do want to get a DVD copy, mine, uh, my personal copy of Revenge of the Creature, is from the Clint Eastwood collection. Oh, because he's... Yes, Cause yes. Clint yes. Eastwood is very briefly in this film. His first role, I believe. We were very confused when your DVD arrived <laughs> and it's got a big picture of Clint Eastwood's face <laughs> on the box and then the creature from the Black Lagoon. And he's like a lab very technician weird. for 30 seconds yeah. or something. Yeah. So yeah, Revenge of the Creature will be episode six. Go and watch it. Go and watch Creature of the Black Lagoon as well because well, it's definitely a watch that one. That's, that's, that's a great, great film. film. That, everyone should watch that film. That's it's, really good. I'm it's full really of time. Here's a little trivia fact for you folks to get you in the mood. Mm-hmm. It's the only 3D sequel to a 3D movie in the golden age of 3D. Ooh. There you go. And on that three-dimensional note. Matthew Stogden, how can people follow you on the interwebs? People can follow me on the interwebs if they so choose by typing in Stogs, S for Superman, T for Tuperman, O for Operman, <laughs> G for Gooperman, H for Hooperman, and Z for Superman. Um, German Superman. Superman. Yeah, that good. Um, yeah, S-T-O-G-H-Z into either Twitter or Instagram, all that stuff. And you can see all the cool shit. Or you could go to theredrighthand.co.uk and read my reviews do that and you can go to cheesemint.com and see all the films and sketches and web series and things we make because they're good and that's all bye thomas martin uh when i'm not sequelizing i run a production company called forward and you can find us on the internet on weareforward.uk if you want to follow us on social media you can do so on facebook instagram and twitter by typing in at made by forward and if you want to get to see the kind of shenanigans that I get to up to when I'm not either sequelizing or making films, you can follow me on Instagram at tommartin underscore 89. Alec Plowman. You can uh, follow me on Twitter. That's Alec underscore Plowman. A for Operman. Ow! L for, L for Looperman. E for a Uperman. C <laughs> No, for Cooperman. C for Cooperman, and that's as far as I'm going. Good, thank fuck for that. Trending. And last, but by no means least, of the two teams of sequelizers. Hello, I'm Stuart Ashen. You can Google my name and I've got one of those celebrity things on Google, or A-S-H-E-N-S. Put them all together and what do you got? Internet bullshit! (laughs) (laughs) I'm... JLW Chambers, that's my initials followed by my surname on basically everything. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. I host a few comic book podcasts. If you enjoyed me talking briefly about comics in this episode, you can listen to me talk about other comics on shows such as the Intercomics Podcast and Ultimate Spin, Four Colour Corner, a bunch of other stuff. I approve of all these shows. I like them a lot. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. I appreciate you. Well, that's weird. If the listeners would like to appreciate... 
the music that Alec and I make. Alec and I are also in a heavy metal band based here in Norwich called Monster City. You go to monstercityband.com and check us out there as well. And of course, if you want to tweet at the show, we are at Sequelizers. If you want to send us an email to complain about my decisions or, I don't know, come up with a better pitch for whatever reason, don't do that. We've had enough of those already. We are Sequelizers at gmail.com. See you next week. See you next week. It's a fortnight between each episode. See you next two weeks, folks. See you in a fortnight. See you in the future, bitches. Same super time, same super time.